Chapter 7 of Brown Book of the Hitler Terror. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Brown Book of the Hitler Terror by Lord Marley. Chapter 7 Brutality and Torture. Part 1. The National Socialist German Labor Party which for years has been maintained by the German Kaisers of Industry and Agriculture, has studied history to guide it in playing its part in the period of social decline. It learnt arson from Nero, the persecution of the Jews from the Middle Ages, the murder of socialists from Mussolini. For many years the official documents of the National Socialist Party have been proclaiming the coming of a St. Bartholomew's night. The official description has been the night of the long knife. This night began with the burning of the Reichstag, and it is not yet over. The workers and peasants have shown too much resistance. Too many millions have rallied behind the banner of freedom. The National Socialist Labor Party has had to turn the St. Bartholomew's night into a St. Bartholomew's year and it is the first quarter of this year which is covered in the following report. The friends of the Hitler government are always ready to repeat the government's declaration that peace and order reign in Germany. Dementis are issued to calm feeling outside of Germany, and festivals and parades are staged to distract attention from what is actually taking place. The few foreign tourists who still care to visit Germany under the present tyranny, are not taken into stormtroop barracks or into concentration camps. It is only by chance that the foreign visitor may be an eyewitness of the nightly tortures, shootings while trying to escape, and secretly organized murders. Every message from foreign journalists to their newspapers, every telephone conversation, every visit they make is carefully noted, and they are threatened with immediate expulsion. And when the cries of tortured victims in the cellars of stormtroop barracks reach the ears of neighbors, when the wife of some tortured prisoner speaks out, when the brutality of the Nazis is actually seen by hundreds of witnesses, then the official explanation is given that this is an exceptional case. But in Essen, on March 7, 1933, Minister Goering officially proclaimed to the applauding howls of a great mass meeting that when wood is being planed, there are always shavings. In reply, it must be stated that these shavings have been organized for many years, that the methods of the Middle Ages now employed by the Nazis have been worked out and advocated for years by the National Socialist leaders. It is the National Socialist leaders who have organized the pogroms and lynchings, the burnings and the pillories, the tortures of the first, second, and third degrees. The methods of the Middle Ages have been employed publicly insofar as they were effective for propaganda, but the tortures have been carried out in private in the darkness of the night. Even now millions of Germans are ignorant of them. The Terror by Night the secret terror has raged continuously since February 27, 1933. There is a general 
settlement of accounts. Arrests are made systematically, tortures carefully arranged. And the ministerial reply to scruples about torturing is to lay down how far these tortures can go. So long as I do not see any communists running around with their ears and noses cut off, there is no reason to get excited. Tortures up to this point are therefore authorized. There is no need to examine the victims too closely or to investigate the denunciations. The Nazis in their arrests can follow the instructions of the French cardinal who told the faithful of the original St. Bartholomew's night. Kill them all. God will be able to pick out his Christians. Every day we are being visited by new victims of these tortures by night who show us their still open wounds. We print below declarations made on oath and reports which we have investigated with the utmost care. The Torture Chambers One report makes it clear that the Nazis have established a regular tariff for beating prisoners. Simple membership of the Social Democratic Party is punished with 30 blows with a rubber truncheon on the naked body. Membership of the Communist Party is usually punished with 40 blows. The penalty is increased when the prisoner has been an official of a political party or trade union. The punishment is to be modified in accordance with the conduct of the prisoner. One prisoner, Bernstein, was given 50 lashes because he was a communist, and then a further 50 lashes because he was also a Jew. There are therefore several degrees of torture, a fact which is brought out in the various declarations which are in our possession. The torture begins from the moment when the victim is fetched from his home. The person who opens the door is threatened with revolvers. The members of the family are threatened. Furniture and books are destroyed or thrown out into the street. Authors' manuscripts, the fruit of many months of work, are destroyed. In the case of workers, whatever remains of their wages is confiscated. The family is made to witness the proceedings. The children see their father struck in his face by unknown young men. The wife sees her husband's face streaming with blood. She asks what they are going to do with him. She gets only an insult in reply. Then the prisoner is kicked out of the room and down the steps to the car which is waiting for him. One report states that after an arrest has been made, the Nazis begin to beat their prisoner on the way down the stairs. The leader of the stormtroop suddenly ordered them to stop beating the prisoner, who then saw that people in the house opposite had been roused. The stormtroopers are disciplined in public. But from the moment when the prisoner enters the Nazi barracks, he is as much an outlaw as the Nazi leaders have been threatening for years to make him. Any Nazi who meets the prisoner on the stairs or in the passages kicks or strikes him. Cowards have become murderers. Day after day they wait outside the doors of the rooms where the first degree of torture is applied and make the prisoners run the gauntlet of whips and boots and rubber truncheons. Then the prisoner is admitted to the presence of the stormtroop leader or higher officer and the trial begins. The court. The judge sits behind a table Three stars on his stormtroop uniform give him judicial powers over all prisoners. Daggers and bayonets are stuck into the table. 
and there are flickering candles at each end. The prisoner is pushed forward to the table. Nazis press closely round him. When he answers, they hit him. If he declares his innocence, they kick him. Any attempt to defend himself is useless. There is no question of what the truth is. The trial is only a farce to provide a pretext for making another martyr. The prisoner hears the source of the denunciation which was the cause of his arrest, and thinks that he can at once disprove the charge. He begins to say something, and then blows are rained down upon him, and he is told not to speak unless he is asked a question. They ask him for addresses. They think that they will be able to make capital of the story, that the leaders of the workers' movement have betrayed each other. But the prisoner refuses to say anything, then the rubber truncheons are used again with furious rage. It is to the eternal honor of the German working-class movement that thousands of workers have not flinched, in spite of all the brutality and torture inflicted on them. They have refused to give new victims to their torturers. THE CELLARS From the court the prisoners are taken to the cellars where they can see in the semi-darkness the flogging benches standing ready. The air is thick with the smell of dried blood and sweat. The prisoner is thrown on to the flogging bench, and steel rods hammer down on his back. Four of the Nazis do the beating. Each new blow cuts the raw flesh to pieces. Then they get tired and push him into the next cellar, where he is no longer alone. Fellow victims are cowering in the corners. The worst mutilated victims are writhing on straw sacks on the ground. Some have lost control and are crying out. From the next room come the cries of the next victim. The prisoners in the adjoining room can now see everything, as someone has thought it right to leave the doors open. The next victim starts up at the first blow from the steel rods. His face is pale. A new command makes him bow down again. His movement was criminal, and the punishment was made more severe. He was forced to count the blows in a loud voice, till the numbers could no longer be distinguished from his cries of pain. The half-unconscious prisoner is then pulled from the flogging bench, and the stormtroop leader walks forward and announces to the victim, Now you will be shot. The prisoner is placed with his face to the wall, there is silence, broken only by the Nazis releasing the safety catches of their revolvers. Then, shots. The prisoner hears the whiz of bullets past his ears, and begins to realize that they are not hitting him. At last he sinks in a swoon, and before he loses consciousness he hears the Nazis laughing. We have many reports of similar treatment, and give the following as typical. I live in the Judenstrasse near number 50, where a stormtroop detachment was quartered. On March 19th, the arbitrary arrests I previously reported were resumed. About 9 p.m., shortly after another prisoner had been taken in, the neighbors heard a shot through the open window of the Nazi office. I was determined to see what was happening, and discovered that there was a man, presumably the prisoner, standing doubled up against the window. Then more shots rang out, but the bullets did not hit the man. Then I saw him fall to the ground, and Nazis bent down over him, laughing. 
One voice shouted several times, Now then, get up, go home. The prisoner seemed not to hear this shout, and he fainted with fear. Is it strange that one should hear of men being driven mad by this? Hundreds of prisoners have been through this. They have been dragged from the torture chambers and thrown into the waiting room among their comrades. At the last moment, before they sink down exhausted on their straw sacks, they are told that they are to be shot the following morning. They are in such pain that they are indifferent to the new threat. But when they come to themselves some time afterwards, they begin to think about it. They have no reason to doubt that the threat will be carried out, so they sit there among their groaning friends, waiting for their last morning to come. During the night, the guard leans against the door and sings, Dawn, dawn, you light my way to early death. A report from the Hedemannstrasse barracks in Berlin gives this detail. Sworn declarations repeatedly show that in many cases the prisoners have been left for days with this threat hanging over them. They hear the beatings beginning again in the adjoining room. The doors are kicked open so that they can see the tortures. From time to time one of the victims is called out and tried again. The Nazis delight in filth. A new prisoner, who looks like an intellectual, is pushed into the torture chamber. The Nazis hold his head, force his teeth apart, and then pour a bottle of castor oil down his throat. Then they ask him politely to take down his trousers. He unbuttons his braces and his trousers drop. The Nazis do not put him on the flogging bench. They make him stand doubled up. The Nazis wait a quarter of an hour. Then they pick up the steel rods and begin to beat him. He screams and stands upright. The Nazis press him down and beat him again. Then suddenly his bowels empty. The Nazi leaders will deny these loathsome cruelties, but our archives show that these statements are true, and we have not only the declarations made by intellectuals and workers who have experienced this, but there is also in our possession a report of a confidential meeting of Nazis in Berlin at which Dr. Goebbels, the Minister for Enlightenment, explained how he would deal with editors who happened to have different opinions from his, the protective corpsman must go to the offices of the paper concerned and give each member of the editorial staff a liter of castor oil. The Nazis, therefore, only act in accordance with instructions. The Red Cross in Nazi Cellars The Nazi doctors, as a rule, are only present at the actual torturing. They are not to render any medical aid but only to determine whether the prisoner may still be beaten. They are like the doctors of the Inquisition. The torture is stopped when there is danger of the victim dying. All reports show that medical aid is only given when the victim appears to be dying. Injections are only made at the last minute. The victims are only carried away to the hospital when the medical expert certifies that they are dying. Propaganda to justify the terror. For years, the National Socialist leaders had been preparing the ground for the terror by systematic propaganda. This was directed in the first place against the November criminals. 
the revolutionaries of november nineteen eighteen who were represented as having been responsible for all the sufferings of germany since nineteen eighteen intensive propaganda was also directed against the soviet union in my fight hitler wrote it must never be forgotten that the rulers of present-day russia are blood-stained common criminals the scum of humanity and on march tenth nineteen thirty three german wireless stations broadcast a horst vessel play in which hitler's lies about the soviet union were repeated that since nineteen seventeen two million people had been murdered in russia that the soviets are the embodiment of lies and deceit looting and robbery then there was the systematic propaganda against the hereditary foe france hatred of france was carefully nurtured and the idea of revenge developed the propaganda against the jews is dealt with in another chapter one example shows its effect in the brutalities shown to jewish victims of the terror a doctor was beaten up in nazi barracks and was lying seriously injured and covered with blood on the straw someone who came into the room called attention to how serious the doctor's condition was this made the Nazi guard furious with indignation, and from his excited statements it was possible to gather that his section leader had told the men the following legend. All doctors who are Jews have for years been taking revenge on German women, who come under their care in hospitals by secretly cutting out their ovaries, so that only Jewish women could bear children, and thus the Jews would rule Germany. The Nazi guard followed up this story by kicking the severely injured man in the stomach. The Blood Guilt of the Nazi Leaders The responsibility of the Nazi leaders not only for the methods of their organized gangs, but for the murderous feelings among their followers is made clear from statements made by the leaders both before and after their seizure of power. The present Minister of the Interior, Frick, declared that it is not a bad thing if a few tens of thousands of Marxist functionaries come to harm. Storr, the former vice-president of the Reichstag, told a mass meeting, We will make the hemp industry prosper. Immediately after the new cabinet of Oldenburg was formed, the premier, Rover, announced, We will put the Marxists and the people of the center on the gallows to feed the ravens. On March 10, 1933, Minister Goering spoke at a mass meeting in Essen. I would rather shoot a few times too short and too wide, but at any rate, I would shoot. Goering's words fell on fruitful soil. At the end of April, the police president of Dortmund issued an instruction. In the last few days, many communist leaflets have been distributed, I order the police to make immediate use of their weapons against any attempt to distribute communist leaflets. The terror was organized. 1. On the night of the burning of the Reichstag, 30 Nazi barracks were prepared for carrying out tortures in Berlin alone. Steel rods, whips, chains, cords for tying up prisoners, water pails, and castor oil were bought and taken to the barracks. The same night they were used. Doctors were allocated to each barracks. Two, 
we are in possession of reports from a number of German towns showing that on the same evening the Nazis were fully mobilized and guards were put round houses where working-class leaders lived, as well as at railway stations and post offices. 3. A similar selection of victims was made in all towns. 4. The arrests were almost everywhere left to the stormtroops and their special detachments. The police merely accompanied them, as the Nazis were not at that time quite sure of their attitude. 5. The enrollment of stormtroopers as auxiliary police began on February 22nd. This is a definite indication that action on a large scale was contemplated, and that it was proposed to keep the appearance of legality as long as possible. 6. In his capacity as Commissioner for Prussia, Goering, officially by an order issued on February 17th, authorized shooting without any form of trial. Every man who in pursuance of this duty makes use of his weapons will be protected by me regardless of the consequence of his action. On the other hand, every man who from any false scruples does not use his weapons can anticipate criminal proceedings against himself. Every officer must at all times remember that omission to take the necessary measures is more serious than a mistake made in applying such measures. 7. High officials of the National Socialist Party have constantly been present in the torture cellars of the Hedemannstrasse in Berlin and in other barracks. They directed the acts of brutality and conducted trials. We have definite evidence, for example, that Count Heldorf, leader of the Nazi stormtroops, who was and remains in daily communication with Goering and Hitler, held parades of the victims of the brutalities. Our Documents We have in our archives 536 declarations made by persons who had been severely ill-treated. The statements have been checked and found to be correct. 137 certificates show that the victims have received serious permanent injuries. 375 declarations mention that the victims, before being allowed to leave the torture houses, were forced to sign statements that they had been well treated. Our material from the towns and villages of the Third Empire supports the conclusion that since February 27th, about 60,000 people have been subjected to violence. An unemployed worker. On Monday, March 6th, 5 p.m., two stormtroopers and a leader came to the door of the flat occupied by the Reichstag Deputy X and demanded admittance. I was in the flat sorting out the washing. I opened the door, at first on the chain. A revolver was thrust through the opening and I was ordered to open the door immediately. I was asked where X was living, but could give no information. Then they took me off with them. They took me in a sidecar to the Bacherstrasse. There they began to ill-use me. I still have, at the time of writing this, the marks of what they did to me, both eyes beaten blue, a bite on my left temple, my hands still swollen and scratched, they called me a young murderer, and similar names, without the slightest ground. 
Then they made me wash off the blood, which was streaming from my forehead, mouth, and nose. I had hardly washed it off when I was taken into the front room, and again they started beating me. I covered my face with my hands, or they would certainly have broken my jaws. But that did not satisfy them. Together with two other prisoners, I was taken in a taxi to the Hedemannstrasse with two motorcyclists as escort. I was told I should be thankful that they were so humane, as they worked differently in the lower groups. I nearly had to laugh when they told me this. At the Hedemannstrasse, I stated when they examined me that I had been begging and had always got something at the door where X lived. Because of this, I had gone there many times, also to talk politics, and eventually Frau X gave me some housework to do, beating carpets and so on. I told the Nazis that I had been very glad to get such treatment from communists. I told them that I was a communist sympathizer and had voted for List 3. Then the man in charge said, We can always do with people who tell the truth. It is not you we want. It is your leaders we want to destroy and settle accounts with. But workers are brutally beaten. On the evening of March 5th, I was with six other workers in a public house in Berlin North. We were waiting to hear the election results. A group of uniformed stormtroop men came in, pointed their revolvers at us, and made us go with them, with our hands above our heads, to the stormtroop quarters in the Exstrasse. There we were beaten up as communist sows. Then we were put into a car and taken to the Nazi headquarters in Hedemannstrasse. We were chased up to the fourth floor, and driven along a corridor with repeated blows and lashes with riding whips. The corridor was decorated from top to bottom with conquered social democratic banners and posters. There was a figure against the wall which was supposed to represent Ernst Thälmann in the uniform of the Red Front, hanging on gallows. We were driven with blows into a general room. We were forced to go down on our knees and shout Heil Hitler, also to say the Our Father and sing the Horst Vessel song. Anyone who did not obey instantaneously was beaten till he was unconscious. Later we were placed against the wall of the room and continuous volleys were fired close above our heads. After they had left us alone for a little while, we were put through the first interrogation. Each of us was summoned alone into a room where there were about six Nazis with riding whips. We had to strip and were then told that we should be beaten until we told everything. They demanded that we should confess the most impossible things. We were asked to give the names and addresses of communist officials and to reveal imaginary hiding places of arms and duplicating machines. During the interrogation, we were beaten the whole time. Then we were given half an hour to think things over, and then the torture began again. Some anti-fascists who had formerly belonged to the Nazis had their heads shaved, except for a forelock, which was tied together. We were told that these people were to be shot next morning. When we arrived, they were lying unconscious on the floor of the general room. Besides ourselves, there were about 50 other communist and social democrat workers in the room. When we were released, a document was put in front of us stating that we had left the building without any injury to our health. We signed. I found two of those who had been with me some time after in the Amfidrishane hospital. One of them had a bullet wound in the neck. 
other typical cases. J.M., a worker living in the Wiederstrasse, Berlin, was taken away by stormtroop men during the night of March 27th to 28th and severely ill-treated in the Nazi barracks in the Rotoverstrasse. His whole body is covered with open wounds. R., a worker living in Schoenberg, who was known to do political work, was found in his flat and there severely injured with steel rods, then being taken to a Nazi barracks. At the time when this report was being written, it was not yet known what had become of him. His flat was completely smashed up by the Nazis when they came to arrest him. Max F., a worker in West Brandenburg, was attacked during the night by about 40 armed stormtroop men. The door of his flat was broken in and they started shooting wildly into the flat. He was hit in the back, but managed to jump through a window and escape. As he ran, he was hit again in the arm, and another shot grazed his body. He got away and was taken in by a hospital. It had to be kept secret that he was in the hospital. Every day his relatives were threatened. Paul Paprocki, a worker of 36 years of age, living in number 23 Malplakstrasse, was taken from his room at 3 a.m. on the night of March 26th the 27th, a strong detachment of stormtroop men took him to their headquarters in the Urtrechtstrasse. When he refused to give any addresses, they began to ill-use him. Some hours later, he was released with serious injuries from blows. The 18-year-old worker Kurt Hackenbusch, Grunthalerstrasse, 63, was arrested with three of his friends on March 26th and taken to the Nazi quarters in the Prinzenstrasse. There they were beaten with heavy leather straps. The prisoners refused to say our father. Further beating. Some hours later, the prisoners were taken to an accident station, where they were forced by threats to state that the Nazis had rescued them from an attack. In addition to cuts in his face and back, Hackenbush has a severe wound on his head. Jacob Ickler, a worker living in Castle Kettengasse 4, 20 years old, was carried off on March 20, 1933, by Nazis who searched his father's flat. He was taken to the town hall, laid on a flogging bench, and then beaten with rubber truncheons. Some blows struck the lower half of his face and his temples. His back and upper legs were streaming with blood. A doctor's certificate testifies to the condition in which he was found. The doctor's name is not given here, as in Germany of the Third Empire, it is no longer safe to give medical attention to a man who has been injured. Urine for thirst. Wilhelm Solmann, a social democratic member of the Reichstag and a former minister of the Reich, writes as under of his ill usage at the hands of stormtroop and protective corpsmen. On Thursday, March 9th, shortly after three o'clock in the afternoon, three cars filled with stormtroop and protective corpsmen pulled up at my house. As at the moment I was speaking on the telephone to a member of the town council, I was able to tell him, Nazis are forcing their way in. Give the mobile police the alarm. At that moment, a number of men armed with loaded revolvers, sticks, and knives forced their way into my study. Before I could say a word, I was struck down at my desk. The men were in a kind of frenzy of hate and joy at being able to take revenge on me. Most of the men went to the other rooms in the house and in a few minutes literally smashed everything to splinters. 
I was hit and thrown into an open car. My wife called out, Where are you taking my husband? One of them answered jeeringly, You will soon know that. First they drove me over the grass towards the wood, as there was a stormtroop man sitting in front of me and flourishing a revolver the whole time. I thought that they were going to shoot me in the nearest wood, but they drove on, abusing me all the time. Some of the abuse was quite insane, and then we crossed the bridge near Kalk. There they drove slowly, and all along the high street, which was full of people, I was exhibited to the crowd. This is the great Solomon. See how small he is. I was taken to the district headquarters of the National Socialists in the Mozartstrasse. I was chased up the stairs with blows and kicks and lashes, and then into the conference room. They had lowered the blinds so that the room was half in darkness. I was to be put before the tribunal. A large swastika banner was spread over the table. I saw that my colleague, Efiroth, was sitting near the window, in the same plight as myself. I had hardly taken a seat near him when the tortures began, and they went on for two hours. First, a man in stormtroop uniform, whom my colleague said was Councillor Abela, made a short speech attacking Efiroth, saying that retribution was now to come. Then protective corpsmen began attacking us with their fists. For about half an hour, Efiroth and I lay on the floor, so exhausted that we could not get up. All the time we were being hit and kicked, and now and then our hair was pulled and our heads knocked together. Eventually we were pulled up and forced into chairs. A man held our hands behind the chair, while another forced us to open our teeth, and poured a quarter of a liter of castor oil down our throats. One of our tormentors shouted for salts to increase our torture, but apparently salts could not be got quickly enough. Then they gave us a short rest again. I begged for a glass of water. When it was given to me, I saw its color, and therefore only used it to pour over my hands, which were covered with blood. One of the men shouted, Why don't you drink the water? At the same moment, he threw the glass with what was left of its contents into my face. Then we were struck and kicked again. All at once, our tormentors seemed to get uneasy. I thought that the police must have been notified of our being attacked and carried off. About five o'clock, the protective corpsman took hold of us, and with a shout of, Into the coal cellar, literally flung us down the stairs. Apparently, the coal cellar was locked, and they seemed to be in a hurry to get rid of us. They therefore pushed us across the street with blows and kicks. Our faces were already a bloody pulp to a motor, where we were made to squat on the floor. The ill-treatment was carried on in the closed motor. One blow struck me in the right eye. We pulled up at police headquarters. Although we were in a state of collapse, we were forced to run in and up the stairs. One of the Nazis said that next day we would have to walk in front of the Nazis' torchlight procession, and at the finish we would be thrown on the heap of torches. The president of the police advised us to let ourselves be put under protective arrest. I referred to my parliamentary immunity. He agreed with what I had said, but nevertheless advised that Efiroth and I should go into the prison hospital. In the hospital we were sewn up and bandaged. During the torturing, one of the protective corpsmen had slowly and deliberately pressed a knife into Efiroth's side. The doctor stated that it would have been dangerous if it had gone a centimeter deeper. 
Next day the press published a report that we had been attacked by political opponents and suffered slight injuries. End of chapter 7, part 1